Thank you, Adam, and uh, I want to thank um, Booney and Alina and Adam. Uh, Catherine wasn't with us today, but I'd extend a word of thanks to her uh, for leading us each week. I want to encourage you to do this, uh, and do this this week if you will. Take your worship guides home and read through the text, and this would just be a good just a good exercise for all of us. Underline all of the common words and themes from the text that we read, read this morning and our call to worship all the way through to the last song. Uh, you may not be able, you, some of you take notes during the message and certainly you could use that as well. But just underline all the words and the common themes. And the reason that I mention that, uh, I hope that we along the way are becoming accustomed to our services specifically pointing to certain things every week. And it begins from at our call to worship and it ends with our benediction. And I'm just encouraging you in that because I know at times uh, we have a whole lot coming to us in the course of our time of worship. And that's a good thing. Uh, but sometimes we just need a moment to stop and reflect on those things. And I want to encourage you uh, to do that. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 5. Last week, uh, we began our uh, five-part Advent series. Uh, here's what I hope we gain uh, from our time together. And if you were not able to be here, or maybe if you just want to jot these things down, uh, there are four things that I hope that, that we were able to communicate. Uh, first, that the plan of man's redemption was a plan of God before there was ever a world and before there was ever a man. The second is that everything that God does, He does for His glory. His purposes, His plans, His methods, everything has been perfectly calculated in God's infinite and perfect wisdom, all for pointing to and displaying His glory. Third, that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, is the centerpiece of all history. And then the fourth thing that I hope that we, we got last week was that the grace of God in Christ just shows off, puts a spotlight on God's glory. That is what His grace does. Uh, so uh, our message last week, the glory of Advent, is that it is a divine decision made in eternity. And that brings us to today. The glory of Advent, a divine gift to meet man's greatest need. A divine gift to meet man's greatest need. Uh, you've probably already turned there. Uh, I want to encourage you to track along with us through some text today, uh, most of which we'll find right there in Romans. Um, before we read the passage, just let me make this comment, and then I'm gonna, we're going to read a few verses of Scripture. So just bear with me a minute, because we're not going to understand this text if we don't understand the context. 
many believe this is one of, uh, if maybe not the most difficult text in Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. Um, I've read it, I don't know, hundreds of times. I I am in awe of it every time I read this text. In fact, uh, we looked at this text uh, just not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before in our connect group. I was was struck in awe of it again. Uh, And Brian, by the way, this text was selected uh, over a year ago for today. uh, And it was by God's providence that we dealt with parts of it uh, in our connect group. But I'll admit that there are things about this text for which I am certain that there is no human explanation. In other words, we can't get there with reason. Uh, We can only get there uh, with faith. Um, It's simple to read, and it's simple to diagram and outline. In fact, I've diagrammed it and outlined it several times over the course of the last couple of weeks as I've been giving attention to it. But the sheer essence of the text is hard to wrap our minds around. It's just difficult. And so you may ask, well, if it's all that difficult, why bother? And it would be a reasonable question, as I was even thinking about it today, especially why bother with giving attention to it in an Advent series. Uh, Advent series are generally pretty simple. You know, you, you say a, a thing about Christ, and, and as we should, and that's good. But the glory of Advent is the glory of God. And God displays His glory in Christ And part of God's glory is that He is God, and we're not. As we said last week, His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His reasoning is not our reasoning. And He gives us some of His reasoning at times, and then sometimes He just tells us what He's done. And it's not left up to us to decide how, We just rest in the fact that this is a God thing, and that's where reason will not always get us there. Things we don't understand, we receive by faith. But the glory of Advent is the glory of God. Paul's letter to the Colossians, he wrote about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, get your mind around that. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And then the author of Hebrews, uh, and I'm pointing you back there because we've been there. We we will reference Hebrews uh, from now until as long as we're together. But right at the very beginning, the author of Hebrews says what? Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Those are groundings for us. So the advent, the coming of God incarnate, reveals the glory of God. And we want to see how in this text this morning. Now before we read our text, I want us to try to, as I said, understand some of the background and why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believes that this is important. And remember, this is coming to us from the Holy Spirit. Paul, in the first three chapters of this letter, he makes plain that all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, Uh, have a a problem, they are in a lost state. 
And that even the law is not a means by which they can escape this state. Um, If you want to turn over just a few pages to chapter 3 and verse 20, and there's kind of an ending summary statement, I believe is a good summary statement of what Paul is communicating from chapter 1 to chapter uh, up, up to chapter 320. He says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's the point that Paul makes in the first three chapters up to verse 20 uh, in, in this letter. Then beginning in 321 until the early portion of chapter 5, Paul argues that salvation is in Christ alone through faith alone. Now we shouldn't be surprised to hear this from Paul since we just spent, prior to last week, we had spent nine weeks in Galatians in a text looking at uh, the benefit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are justified. Uh, So I I want us to hear a little bit about this tracking in Romans until we get to our text today. So you may want to follow along in your Bibles, but look at Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read a few verses from chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses, beginning in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look in verse 11. He, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Look in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Look in verse 16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, meaning the father of all of those who have faith. Look at verses 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then if you would look at the first part of verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now let's listen to our text today. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, in light of all that we just said now, mind you, so we read those verses for a reason. I hope you understand that. Therefore, just as sin 
came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, we echo the things that we have already said of you today, that you are a God of infinite glory and wisdom. You are the God of all truth. So Father, if you will, speak to us today, granting us grace to hear from you. Father, will you direct our thinking by your Spirit and then convey your word to our hearts. Help me, Father, as I seek to say that which is true of you. But Father, even beyond that which I say, would you plant that truth in our hearts and in our minds, causing us to long for you and to worship you rightly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our aim in the next few minutes is going to be centered around trying to ask and answer five questions. You may want to jot these down. They're short. They'll be easy for you. The first is, what is the greatest need of mankind? What is the greatest need of mankind? Two, why does that need exist? That's an important question. Why does that need exist? The third question, what is the gift that is given that meets that need? We've titled our message that the glory of Advent is divine gift that meets man's greatest need. What is the gift that is given that meets that need? Fourth, who meets the need and why? That's kind of a two-part question. 
Who meets the need and why? And then lastly, what lasting benefit remains? What lasting benefits remain? Now I want you to know on the outset that the scope of this text is not limited to these five things. In fact, we won't even begin to scratch the surface on what this text says, but this text does answer these questions. And I think it answers these questions in a way uh, unlike any other part of Scripture. So, the first question, what is the greatest need of mankind? Well, let's stay within Romans. We could hear it from a lot of places in Scripture, but let's stay within Romans and hear how the Holy Spirit describes it in this context and in the opening of the letter, Paul lays forth this, this aim, if you will. So you may want to look at Romans chapter 1 in the first few verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. And apostleship, and here is the key, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to write a few sentences later in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And unless we're confused as to who Paul is speaking about, when we get to chapter 3, he makes it completely clear. And he puts it this way. He recalls the words of the psalmist first, so he appeals to the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. And then Paul adds his words, the Holy Spirit's words, to that in verse 22 and 23. For there is no distinction, and Paul is arguing that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In other words, he's encompassing the whole world in those two groups of people. There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're probably not surprised to be reminded of these texts. All men since Adam are, and just make note of this, we'll not look at all the texts today that speak of it in this way, but I want us to grasp this. All men, Adam included, and since Adam, fallen, disobedient, rebellious, unrighteous, ungodly, sinful, God-hating, spiritually dead, depraved, damned enemies of God. And how do we know this? Well, the Bible tells us so. 
And the preacher says so. Preachers say that, don't they? But our lives bear witness of it, don't they? Our lives bear witness of it. And there we have it. That leaves us with our greatest need. And Paul is telling us what that greatest need is. And so we can narrow it down because Paul gets very specific about it in our text. And we're going to look at just how specific he gets. The greatest need is to be righteous. But we just read what we are. And did you catch righteousness in it? We heard unrighteous. But nowhere in that litany of words and that list of words that the Bible tells us who we are, do we see anything about being righteous. We need to be righteous and we know this because as we have read through Romans, what is it that Abraham receives by faith? Righteousness. What is it that justification brings about? Righteousness. So our greatest need is that of righteousness. It is that of needing to be justified. Let's hear those verses again, just a moment. And then you just, if you want to turn back to them as we went through them in chapter 4, you may want to, again, underline these words or at least make note. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what he needed. That's what it was counted for. He, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of what? The righteousness that he had by faith. Romans 4.13 For the promise to Abraham as his offspring is that he would be heir of the world that did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then again in 4.16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. The promise of what? The promise of righteousness, the promise of that which enables a person to stand in the presence of God. Verses Chapter 4, 23 through 25. But it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But it was written for everyone who would trust in him. Why? Because he, Christ, had been raised for their justification. They needed to be justified. They needed righteousness. And that's the reason why when Paul gets to chapter 5 in verse 1, he says, and therefore since we have been justified by faith. In other words, we have been made righteous by faith. So our greatest need is to be made righteous. Because apart from righteousness, eternal life is impossible. How do we know that? We'll look in verse 21 of chapter 5. We read it just a moment ago. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, how? Through righteousness leading to eternal life. So apart from righteousness, there is no eternal life. That is man's greatest need. So we're clear. Every person who has ever lived is lacking righteousness and they need it if there's to be eternal life. 
That is you, it's me, it's every person. So why does the need exist? That's the second question. Why does that need exist? And we might say because we are fallen, disobedient, rebellious, unrighteous, ungodly, sinful, God-hating, spiritually dead, depraved, damned enemies of God. And you know what? We'd be partly right. We'd be partly right in saying that. That yeah, that's why we that's that's why the need exists. But what are what are all of these things? And here's where the text is profoundly important. We are these things because Adam sinned. Look at verse 12. We're just going to look at this first verse for just a moment. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This one man who sinned was Adam. So we are these things because Adam sinned. We can't overstate the significance of Adam's one act of disobedience. Here is its significance. Adam sinned and every person from Adam was born under the curse of Adam's sin. The damage done by Adam's sin affects every human being in every place in all of time. Adam, as it were, in one disobedient act, he ravaged humanity and creation. Let's track along through these verses and we'll see the impact. I hope you feel the heaviness of this as we read it. In verse 15, by the transgression of the one Adam, many died. Verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Now most of us can get this. Most of us can get this. Where we often stumble in this text is when considering that we were spiritually slain and received death and the damnation of eternal death for something that we didn't do. Most of us can look at this text and say, yeah, I see evidence of sin in my life. That is a product of the fall. Therefore, I deserve these things. But that's not what Paul was saying. That's what's so profoundly different. That's the reason that the advent is so glorious. That's the reason that the coming of Christ was so glorious is that you, though guilty, are not damned and not given death and are not being judged because of what you do or have done. Paul's argument is is that you are damned to death, spiritually dead, will face physical death and will experience eternal death apart from Christ because of what Adam did and what he has done. 
And Paul wants to make sure that we understand this. He intends to make clear that this death is a result of the condition that reigned even through Adam for all of time and for all of men. One of the mysteries of God's work is how all humanity is tied in this way to the sin of one man. And we know this is true because the text is comparing Adam along the way with Christ. Paul intends to make clear that we see this. That sin reigned even from Adam to Moses. In other words, the condition existed even without the law. In fact, when we look at the law, we understand that the law only makes things worse. Look, if you will, in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We'll talk in a minute why about that in a minute. But it increased the trespass. And here is why, according to Paul, because Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Notice what it says there in the last part of verse 15. Uh, and was, he says, it's not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Uh, I literally spent hours this week thinking about this. And here's why. After reading it over and over and over again, I was reminded that most of us who have been under some Bible teaching have read some books by various authors, we are not unfamiliar with this idea of someone in Scripture being a type of Christ. In other words, that word type means a pattern or a foreshadowing. We're not uncommon. It's not uncommon for us to think about Moses, for instance, and hear about Moses being a type of Christ. Why? Because Moses was a deliverer. He delivered, he led Israel out of bondage in Egypt. So we look at him and we say that he was a type of Christ. Why? Because he was, if he would, foreshadowed. He pointed to the fact that Christ would deliver his people out of sin. He would deliver out of the bondage of sin. And we can identify with that. But that's not what Paul says here in regards to Adam. It says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. It seems that Adam is most known for his humanity ravaging sin, not an act of righteousness or aid to people. The con it look at the, the, the context with Christ and the comparison with Christ. Adam sinned and in Adam all men from him, which is every man, was seen as having sinned and received spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. In other words, Adam was a type of Christ because Adam's sin was imputed to all humanity. Adam's sin was imputed to all humanity. And Paul is intent on helping us understand this because our greatest need is that of righteousness and we are unrighteous, but we're not going to become righteous 
Christ was obedient even to the point of death, and every person in Christ is seen as having obeyed even to the point of death and has received spiritual life, a resurrection to life after physical death, and eternal life. Track along with me there for just a minute. I want us to look at the comparisons. Look in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, and I want you to make note of this, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Look in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And then in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the gift. Our need is that of righteousness. And our need is that of righteousness is because Adam's act of sin was imputed to us and left us damned. So what is the gift that is given that meets that need? Well, we've already been pointing to it. The gift is righteousness. Notice verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, and note this, the free gift of righteousness. So the gift that is needed is righteousness, will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the gift that meets man's greatest need is the gift of Christ's righteousness. But I want you to notice how certain this is. And this is what Paul is stressing in this text. As much as it is true that we and you are counted guilty under Adam for something that you did not do, you are counted righteous in Christ for something that you did not do. And it's here that Paul puts more stress on the grace of God. We read it in verse 17, but go back and look at the abundance of grace. And then look, if you would, in verse 20. And now the law came in, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, what happened? Grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. 
Here's why we heard last week that God planned all of this for the praise of His glorious grace. Because His grace, listen, His grace is more powerful than the devastating condition that we inherit from Adam. I want you to hear that today. That the glory of Advent is the glory of the grace of God which is more powerful than the condition that we were under. Not by our choosing, mind you, but because it was imputed to us that the power and the glory of the grace of God so supersedes that that Paul says much more does the grace of God work the abounding of God's grace in our lives toward giving righteousness. Who meets the need and why? Well, we've heard Christ meets the need. Christ meets the need. Notice that we hear that it is in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It was Adam who pointed toward Christ. I want to share a thought with you that I had this week. I haven't been able to get away from it. I'm still thinking on it. I'm still mulling over it. But last week we said that, in pointing to Scripture, we didn't just say it, we read it from Scripture, that the advent, the coming of Christ, man's redemption was planned before there was ever a creation and before there was ever a man created. In the scope of that plan, God planned Adam who would be a type of Christ even before the first man was ever born God had planned for him to be a type of Christ pointing to him and how else would we see Christ if Adam had not fallen and had not the iniquity and sin and the judgment of that sin being imputed upon mankind, then the glory of Christ would never have been seen. The glory of Christ and Him imputing righteousness upon those who are not righteous. I told you, it's a mystery. It's hard to get our minds around, but it points to the glory of God. Christ meets that need. He meets it through His righteousness, demonstrated by His obedience. We often talk about Christ's active obedience and His passive obedience. He meets it through His active obedience in His living, in His never sinning. But he also met it in his passive obedience in his death. Look, if you would, back over in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. For through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now I want you to hold on to that phrase for just a moment because we're going to see how that phrase and the last phrase in verse 21 sandwich all of this together. But we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it goes on to say in verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, His passive obedience. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. In the one, He lived the life that we couldn't live. And in the other, He died the death that we deserved and paid the penalty of our sin. Why? Because we were deserving? No. For the glory of God? Yes. But look in the last part of verse 20. Why did He do this? He did this so that as sin reigned in death, in verse 21, so that sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did He do that? Because we needed our sin paid for. We needed His righteousness. A righteousness that we would not ever be able to know that we would never be able to attain, and He imputed that upon us that we might have eternal life through Him. And then the last question, and this is the part that I just, I just can't get away from. What lasting benefits remain from this? The absolute assurance that those who trust in Him are justified. That's the benefit. The absolute assurance that those who trust in Him are justified. He is so much greater than Adam. Over and over again through this fifth chapter, Paul keeps saying that Christ is so much more. He is so much more. His point is, is just as certain as it is that Adam's sin has been imputed to every child that was ever conceived. Every person was imputed with the sin and the condemnation and the judgment that comes from that sin was imputed upon us. As much as that is true, Paul is shouting out, so much more true is the fact that those who trust in Christ are justified and Christ imputes His righteousness upon them. Christ imputes His righteousness upon them. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, we hear, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit.
the glory of Advent. A divine gift that meets man's greatest need. The gift of righteousness. I am grateful today for that gift and for the goodness of our God in giving it. I hope you are.